Right to be Read podcast, episode number 84. Interview with Gabriela Pereira. Are you struggling trying to figure out how to sell copies of your book, especially the first 100 copies? The Author Marketing Institute is offering access to their latest free video course called Selling the First 100 Copies of Your Book. This is the course everyone should have when they started publishing. It goes through all the basics from starting a mailing list to experimenting with different prices. If you follow the instructions in this course, you should be primed and ready to sell your first 100 copies, if not many more. Sign up for free at www.authormarketinginstitute.com. You are listening to the Right to Be Read podcast, and this is your host, Ani Alexander. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Right to Be Read podcast, the podcast that inspires and encourages writers. I'm your host, Annie Alexander, and today you will be getting yet another interview which will be packed with inspiration and encouragement. Today I uh, will be talking to Gabriela Pereira, and uh, I just realized that I don't know why I didn't do this on purpose, definitely not. But it happens so that um, I'm having more male guests than female ones. So I'm really happy to be talking today to the very few female guests of mine. And I hope you will enjoy our conversation. My today's guest is Gabriela Pereira. She is the creative director and instigator of DIY MFA, the do-it-yourself alternative to master's degree in writing. She earned an MFA from the New School and has taught writing both online and at writing conferences. Her book about DIY MFA is due out in spring 2016 from Writer's Digest Books, so you can learn more about her and what she's doing at DIYMFA.com. So um, welcome, Gabriella. I'm really happy to have you over and welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Ani. This is such an honor and a pleasure to be here. I'm really excited. Yeah, well, uh, thank you very much for having the time um, to talk to me, because actually I have a feeling that we're, um, you know, we're doing more or less uh, very similar things together, which is working with writers and trying to help them out and, uh, you know, everything around writing and writers and uh, things like that. Absolutely. I, there's nothing I love more than connecting with writers and helping them get those words on the page and then the stories out into the world. So this is awesome. I'm so excited. And I love meeting other people who have the same passion. So this is great. Yeah, I mean, what I love most is seeing like the very first books of people who just started from scratch and then you see the results because it, it's very kind of empowering to know that you also played some role in that. And, you know, it's to me, it's very encouraging because whenever I see a debut author launch their first book, 
it makes me realize that magic is possible. You know, like if they can do it, anyone can do it. And it just kind of revives my faith in writing and my faith in literature and in the written word, you know, to see a new author have their voice out there. Because ultimately, that's really what it's about. It's about putting your voice out into the world. So it's just, for me, it's just such a inspiring moment to see a debut author, you know, with that first book in their hands. So. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, so how did you end up doing what you're doing? Uh, was it something you, you've been doing all the time or you transitioned from somewhere else? Uh, you know, how did you end up being uh, where you are? So my path to DIY MFA is a very long and windy one. Um, once upon a time, I actually used to be a toy designer and I used to design toys for a specialty toy company um, just outside of New York City. And I worked mostly in the preschool toddler toy division, but I wow. also did some <laughs> other, uh, you know, toys for older kids as well. I took care of their spy gear. So I got to like test out walkie talkies and really fun stuff like that. <laughs> and the question everybody asks me every time I tell them I worked in toys is, is it like that movie big? And I say, no, <laughs> It's a lot of fun, but it's not like you're sitting around in a room with a ton of toys just playing all day. Um, there's a lot more to it than that. But uh, I was working in the toy industry, and then I kind of decided to shift gears for a number of reasons, and I wanted to go back to writing because I had done a lot of writing in college, and um, I just wanted to get back into it. So I spent some time kind of thinking about how I was going to do it. And then I decided to apply for an MFA in writing at the new school. And because I was into toys and I kind of understood kids, I was sort of in that kid mindset. I applied specifically to the new school because they have a program in writing for children. Mm -hmm. And that's where I ended up going. Um, and it's a really fantastic program. If anyone is interested in sort of formal training in how to write for kids, it's really a fantastic, fantastic program. But what happened was at the end of the program, when I was sitting, I still remember the exact moment I was sitting in graduation, I was listening to some, you know, valedictorian type speaker talk about following your dreams and blah, 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 spread your wings and fly all that cheesy <laughs> graduation stuff. And I started thinking about, you know, I'd had this really great experience. I was really grateful for the time that I'd had in the MFA program. But what about all the other people? What about people who had five kids or people who live somewhere very rural where there isn't a school just in their backyard? Mm -hmm. I mean, for me, going to the new school was, uh, you know, a couple of stops on the subway. It wasn't a real stretch to go to an MFA program. And, you know, as far as like the cost too, like that's another big factor. Like I was able to you know, go to school, I had the finances to swing it. But what if somebody doesn't have it, and they have to take out enormous loans, and then it's not like an MFA is like a medical degree or a law degree, where at the end of the day, at some point, you're going to make back the money you sank into the yeah. degree. Mm -hmm. But a writing degree is not like that. You're, you don't have a, you know, sense that your degree will actually bring in more money than if you had no degree. So I started thinking about like people who were facing this dilemma of like, they want to go back to school, they want to get, you know, sort of 
raise their level, kind of get to a higher level as writers. And because let's face it, at the MFA level, you really are kind of putting, you know, your nose to the grindstone. This is it. Like you're putting your money where your mouth is and you're really working to be a writer. It's not just dabbling anymore. You're kind of taking that extra step. Mm -hmm. So I was thinking about like, you know, what if someone wants to do that, but they can't, then what do they do? And that's when the idea for DIY MFA sort of came into my head. So fast forward later that evening after graduation, I sent out a post to, I had a very tiny blog, maybe like 10 or 12 people followed it. One of them was my mother. Um, (laughs) By the way, my mom still follows all of my blog posts. It's really adorable. But anyway, um, I, uh, you know, I put a post up saying like, hey, if there was a do-it-yourself version of the MFA, would you do it? And all of a sudden, all these people started commenting about it and leaving comments. And that's when I kind of realized I'd hit on something that I'd sort of pushed a button that really kind of needled people and meant something to people. So after that, I started, you know, I experimented. It took me a long time to kind of get on my feet at DIY MFA. I did for a while. I blogged about it um, and sort of just tested out the idea. I tested out multiple curriculums um, just on this small personal blog. And it was sort of a litmus test. Like if I could blog about it, say, for a month every single day, then I kind of knew that I had something to say. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't just, you know, an idea that happened to be a flash in the pan and then it's over. Um, And so then at one point I met a mentor who told me like, okay, it looks like you've built enough traction that this deserves its own space on the web. Uh, You, you need to sort of create a new website. And so I went ahead and, you know, set up DIYMFA.com and, After that, it's just been, you know, a question of like slowly building out, slowly creating courses and whatnot. And, um, you know, this has become like an all-consuming passion for me. Um, It's not like the honeymoon period never ended. (laughs) It's like I still am completely in love with my job. And every morning I wake up and I'm like, I, you know, I can't wait to get into my office. Um, And then the, the one thing sort of to come full circle is that, People often say, like, how the heck did you get from designing toys for kids to creating DIY MFA stuff? And I tell them, like, it's not any different. Essentially, I went from designing educational toys for toddlers and preschoolers to creating educational programs, activities, courses for writers. But it's still the same part of my brain that's creating the materials. It's still that same kind of product development mindset. It's just uh, this sort of a different audience. And in this case, it's an audience that I really relate to because it's an audience that I am in. So I I test everything that goes out there. I test on myself first. Uh-huh. So Yeah, well, interesting. And actually, it brings me to the thought that nothing is lost. And, you know, the years you spent designing toys definitely, you know, helped you in designing products for writers as well. Absolutely. And, you know, that idea that nothing is lost is so important for writers, because I see so many writers get upset when they, you know, they write like an entire novel that never sees the light of day, and it sits in the bottom drawer. I've got two of those, by the way. Um, And, (laughs) you know, like, they sit in the bottom drawer, and you don't know if they're ever going to come out and if you're going to be able to revive them. And then people feel like, oh, I wasted all those words, I wasted that story or whatever. It's not wasted. 
you know, when you, everything you write is one step toward your goal and you would not be in, it, it gets you to the place where you are able to write that amazing story. So you will never, writing is never wasted. It's always somehow getting you a step closer to writing that amazing story, even if it never ends up in the final product, even if it never sees the light of day and stays tucked away in that bottom drawer, but it's never wasted. And I really believe in this firmly, like nothing is ever wasted. It's always inching you closer to your goal. Yeah, absolutely. I I believe in that too. And I was I'm, since you mentioned that already, I just wanted to to talk about um, all those um, novels in the drawers which never come out. And what do you think? What keeps writers um, not taking out their books to the world? I don't know. I mean, I think for me. I made a very conscious decision to put those novels in the drawer. I had a fork in the road. Um, I was in a place when I graduated from the MFA program where I actually had an agent interested in one of my books, but I also had DIY MFA starting to pick up speed. And I knew that I did not have enough hours in the day to do both of them justice if I tried to juggle both. Mm -hmm. So I knew that I would have to pick, you know, it's kind of like, which one do you pick? Like that sort of horrible dilemma, like almost like picking between your two children or something. But I had to make a very conscious choice. And for me, I chose DIY MFA over that novel project. Now, that's not to say that I might not come back to it in, you know, two or three years. That that might very well happen. I might completely rewrite it, but I still might come back to that story. Um, as far as like what keeps writers, I feel like it's one thing to make a decision. Like if you decide I am choosing project A over project B, that is a good way of making a decision. And in my mind, like that's an effective choice. But when you kind of just put a, a story in the bottom drawer as sort of a default response because you're afraid, then that's not as effective. That's when writers really need to summon up the courage to put themselves out there. And, you know, it's it's funny. I actually wrote about courage in my most recent newsletter and Because this weekend I was at a conference and one of the things that impressed me about the writers I met at this conference was how much courage they had. You know, a lot of these writers were putting their, you know, they were pitching query letters and whatnot to agents or pitching their stories to agents. They were putting themselves in a very vulnerable position. They were also, um, there was a whole session I sat in on a panel where people would submit anonymously their first pages. Mm -hmm. And then the people on the panel would read the first pages and just critique out loud in front of the whole audience. And that takes a lot of guts. That takes a lot of bravery. And, you know, I wanted to really like honor the fact that these writers had the guts to do that, that they really, you know, put themselves out there because it takes courage. And so writers need to realize that like, yes, it's scary. Yes, you got to put yourself out there and it might be painful and someone might say no, and that might hurt. Trust me, I've gotten a lot of nasty no's in my life too. (laughs) We all get them. Yeah, Um, You're in good company. Um, 
when I, whenever I get a rejection, I think of that story, Stephen King writes about it in his memoir where he had like this hook, hook or a peg yeah. on the wall, you know, and like all the query letters, there's so many of them that it broke the hook from the wall. So, you know, if, if that happened to Stephen King, I mean, he's Stephen King. So if it happened yeah. to him, then like, who am I to expect that, you know, I'll get, you know, a yes from my first query or from my first pitch. Yeah, exactly. And I'm, I mean, I, I wrote a blog post about uh, failures of successful writers and how many times they have been rejected. And uh, I was amazed to find out that William Saroyan had received 3000 rejections be wow. be before his very first story got published. So <laughs> it's, uh, it's amazing. And it's also about the persistence and, you know, about not giving up and pushing forward. So I was just wondering, um, because I thought about this myself a lot, um, about whether one can learn how to write and how to get this balance between um, kind of following the rules and keeping your own original voice. Uh, how is it, I mean, if one starts following the rules and one starts learning how to write and keeps and sticks to the um, rules of the genre, let's say, how much should that be and how much should you leave space, free space for your own original voice? So that to me sounds almost like two questions. So I'm going to address it in two parts. Sure. The first part, this idea of like how to learn how to write and if you can learn how to write. I firmly believe that you can learn to write. Um, writing is a skill. Yes, there is a little bit of talent involved, but here's the thing. If you write something and then you get rejected and you get turned down, chances are, and this is going to, at first it's going to sound a little harsh, but hear me out, people. Chances are it's because the work is not good enough yet. And yes, that sounds a little harsh, but think about it. If it was because the publishing industry was, you know, really horrible and they just were out to get you. Or if it was, if you were rejected because you just have no talent, those would be things you can't control. But when you think about it in terms of like your work just isn't quite good enough yet, that's something you can control. If you're thinking about the skill aspect of writing, that like building up that skill that's something that you can do. And so at the end of the day, it's you can get better and you can then get good enough to the point where your writing will get mm -hmm. placed in magazines and it will you will get an agent and you will get an editor and all of those good things. So that's the first thing. I do believe that writing is a teachable skill. I think that there's a little bit of luck involved. I think that there's a little bit of talent involved. But at the end of the day, the only thing you can control is the skill. So that's the only thing you should worry about. Don't think about talent. Don't think about luck. Don't think about the publishing industry. That's just going to, you know, it, when I start thinking about those things, it makes me want to cry. Mm -hmm. So I don't think about them. I just put them away and I focus on the skill, on the writing, on getting better. So that's the first part. The second part, um, this idea of like following the rules and, you know, should you follow the rules or not follow the rules? This is something I tell my students all the time. There are no accidents in writing. 
it's just like you know that line from that movie there no there's no crying in baseball it's the same exact thing there's mm-hmm. no there are no accidents in writing and so i challenge writers to get to a place where they are no longer doing things like they're no longer following the rules or breaking the rules on accident they're breaking it on purpose and that's sort of what you should strive to do. Like, it doesn't really matter if you follow the rules or you don't follow the rules. You need to know what the rules are so that you can then break them. But you need, but it doesn't really matter if you're sort of following it to the letter or if you decide to just throw caution to the wind and write it your own way. As long as you do it on purpose and as long as you have a good reason for doing it. So that's one of the things that, like, you know, you, a lot of writers, when they want rules or when they want, you know, kind of how do I write and what's the right way and the wrong way or whatever, it's – you don't – there's no right or wrong way because that would mean putting your brain on autopilot and just following the rules. Mm-hmm. Instead, I want writers – I challenge writers to listen and think, like think through and make every single decision. Like every word should be in your writing for a reason. Mm-hmm. It shouldn't be just something that happened. And that's, again, like that goes for both the stuff that works and the stuff that doesn't work. Like if something doesn't work and you do it for a particular reason or if it's sort of breaking the rules or whatever, then you have a reason to back it up. And then if you happen to do something that turns out really well, if you did that by accident, you'd never be able to do it again. Yeah. And that would kind of <laughs> stink, yeah. you know, so you kind of want to understand why you did it in the first place and why you did it that way so you can do it again and you can get that same good effect. So that's sort of my two-part answer to that question. Yeah, well, great. Yeah, I, I, I can imagine like, um, you know, when when one is writing and then it, it's quite sad if it works and you don't know exactly. <laughs> what you've done and how to repeat that. So it's, yeah, I can imagine. So and what- I'll add also that, you know, when I was in high school, I used to be that really obnoxious student who, when the teacher would say that Shakespeare put that word in the poem for exactly that reason, I would like raise my hand and say, are you sure Shakespeare wanted it that way? Really? (laughs) Like, did you ask him? I was that annoying student. But the thing is, is what I've learned as a writer is there really are no accidents in writing. And that's, you know, if people take away one thing from listening to this episode, that would be what I'd want them to take away is this idea that there are no accidents. You have to do it on purpose. Okay, guys, let's take a very short pause now and hear our sponsor's message and we'll get back to you shortly. Did you know there's a new place to sell your audiobooks besides ACX and Audible? There is Buck Books. Authors, I know most of your audiobooks are sold exclusively through ACX, but on any new books you have, a one-day sales pit stop at Buck Books is a no-brainer. When your narrator finishes your audiobook, send us the files and we will feature it to tens of thousands of our active subscribers and growing for one day only. You get some great sales and the very next day you can upload it exclusively to ACX. This is a great way to help offset the cost of production on a new audiobook and start building a strong relationship with the world's hottest free book promotion service, Buck Books. Not sure how to go about getting your book made into an audiobook or having trouble deciding if audiobook production is right for you? With an audiobook team of 10 and the lowest production cost around, Buck Books is ready to help you finally add this lucrative format to your author portfolio and sell it too. For more information, send an email to john at buckbooks.net. That's john, J-O-H-N, at buckbooks.net. 
Okay, and let's get back to our questions now. Well, in that case, when you are writing and putting each single word on purpose and you know why it's there, how does a writer deal with uh, editing? And when, when a professional editor goes through your book and suggests changes, um, how does a writer feel about that? Well, I'll even backtrack a little bit to that question. Before you even get to the editor, you have to edit it yourself. Yeah. And the thing is, is those words kind of being in the right place and the sentences being in the right place and everything being, you know, everything, a place for everything and everything in its place. That to, for me doesn't happen until like draft number five or something. Wow. Like awesome. when I write like the first draft, it's just a big old mess. And the way, and that's just my own process. Some writers can get it that way in the first draft, all the more power to them. I have massive respect for those writers. <laughs> Unfortunately, I'm not like that. Um, but the way I kind of think of it is it's like you're putting, when you first put your words on the page, you're just creating the raw material. Because I want to make sure that writers listening don't worry so much about putting everything in the right place that then they don't put any words down on the page. That would then defeat the whole purpose of, you know, what I'm trying to convey. Um, so you kind of need to just do that sort of word dump on the page mm -hmm. <laughs> where you just kind of throw it all on the page and you just sort of let it, you know, like verbal spillage as it were. And then you kind of, and that's your raw material. It's almost like a sculptor, you know, like a sculptor has their stone. The writers need the words on the page so that then you can craft it and chip away at it and, you know, polish different areas and make it beautiful. But it's not going to come out beautiful on the first try for most writers. So that's sort of the first thing. And then when you're dealing with feedback from an editor, you know, that's, it's a collaborative process. The editor, it's not like us versus them. It's not like the editor's out to get you and out to like circle all the things that are wrong mm -hmm. in your your piece. They just want you to put the best book out there. So, you know, when, when an editor comes back and says, you know, I really think you should change this, it's not like they're trying to do it to hurt you. <laughs> it's like they're trying to do it to, to help you put your best foot forward. So, you know, and the other thing that a lot of writers forget is that, like, it is your book. If you really feel strongly about something and the editor disagrees, you can talk to them and, you know, kind of negotiate things. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it's, it's at the end of the day, it's your name on the cover, it's your book, but it's not like the editor is just telling you what's, you know, wrong. I'm doing air quotes right now. What's wrong with your book just for, you know, fun. <laughs> They're doing it because they want your book to be as good as it can possibly be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I see. And from what you've been doing with students, um, what you can say, what are the biggest struggles that writers, especially newbie writers have? Um, the biggest struggles. I know that putting words on the page can often be a struggle. A lot of writers, you know, have a hard time getting started, getting that initial motivation and sort of figuring out just sort of how to get into 
motion. Um, I often think about writing as sort of being like Newton's law of motion, where, you know, objects in motion stay in motion, objects at rest stay at rest. Mm-hmm. You want to be in motion, but usually if you're starting from a standstill, it's really hard to kind of rev up your motor and get going. Once you've sort of gotten yourself into a routine, into a a habit of writing fairly regularly, it's a lot easier to kind of sustain that momentum. So I find that kind of getting going is often a, a hard thing. For writers, um, a lot of times there's fear involved with that, fear of, you know, what if I don't do it right? What if it's awful? What if it's, you know, what if I embarrass myself? All of those fears, and that often kind of puts people, you know, sort of makes the car go into idle, Mm -hmm. and they lose that momentum. Um, Yeah, I would say that's like a really big a big uh, struggle, I think, is just kind of getting into, like, once you kind of get yourself into motion, you're, that's like half the battle right there. And my go-to technique, like when I'm not in motion, my go-to technique is I just try to write something horrible. Like, I just sit down and write, like, the worst possible thing. And it'll never, yeah, like, and it'll never be as bad as I think it is. But I'll just be like, I'm going to write it even if it's horrible. Like, even if it's just messy and disgusting and, like, I never want to show it to anybody, I'm just going to write it. And I sit down and I just start writing random ideas and that gives me the momentum. And then I can always erase the beginning if it's really horrible or I can fix it or any number of things. But I find that often trying to write something good then freezes me up. It makes me feel nervous. It makes me mm-hmm. feel scared that I'm not going to write something good. Yeah, well, so, maybe it's it's just, you know, uh, you, you start with big expectations and then, you know, the disappointment uh, is more possible once you start from that point, most probably. Exactly. Like, if you set your expectations really, really, really low, then you'll overcome them. Mm-hmm. You'll you'll supersede them. So I just set really low expectations. If I'm feeling kind of that writer's block, like I can't get myself into motion, and it's just to get the momentum going. And then once I've got the momentum going, that's when I start kind of challenging myself and pushing myself a little harder. Mm-hmm, I see. And what about, I don't know, I mean, strategically speaking, uh, what do you think we have like writers who stick to a certain genre and write certain type of books so the readers know what to expect from them and they build the audience around those topics or genres etc and then we have other writers who kind of uh, write pretty much whatever they feel like writing at that point and end up with different different kind of books which don't have too much in common so um, what do you think what's like what is the right approach is i mean i I understand that there is no way to kind of balance things out so you 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 end up being either one of uh the the first writers or or the the, from the other group so uh, what do you think about that should one kind of you know decide to become uh uh, to become a certain writer and stick to what's what's about that or um, one should experiment and see what happens i believe that writers should write the thing that doesn't make them want to break their computer so like (laughs) if you hate it don't write it if you love it 
write it. Like if you only want to write in a particular genre and that's what you love and that's what you're excited about and you're passionate about it and you just have story after story bubbling out of you, then just stick to that genre. Do it. If you love to write all sorts of different genres and you don't really see how it hangs together just yet, but you just love to explore different genres, then explore different genres. But the minute something feels like a chore, the minute it starts to feel like you, I mean, not when it gets hard, because it's going to be hard. Mm -hmm. So don't just, you know, chicken out when it gets hard. Um, But the minute it just feels painful, like if something just really feels like you are pulling teeth and you are never going to get through writing this project and you feel like you're going to throw your computer out the window, don't throw your computer out the window, by the way, Um, (laughs) that's when you know that that's not something you should write. Like it's, it's pretty simple in my head. (laughs) Like I don't, I don't stop and think about strategy and and all of that stuff. Like you could make yourself crazy thinking about all that strategy. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, writing a book is hard. You're going to have to be with these characters and these in this world of your book for 300 pages or so. That's a long time. So if you don't like the characters or if you don't like the world or if you don't like the genre, don't do it because it's just not worth it. <laughs> yeah. I yeah agree completely. So we spoke about um, about the courage of putting yourself out there and being in a vulnerable situation. So what happens when one actually gets the courage and actually self publishes or publishes a book, and then that book doesn't do well? And um, how one should keep the motivation and keep the self-esteem in order to continue in that case? Um, Two things. Try again and find someone who liked it or some piece of evidence that that project was worthwhile and put it somewhere very visible. (laughs) So what I mean by this is like, Let's say your book doesn't sell that many copies, but you actually got one really good review. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Print it out and put it somewhere where you see it. Um, I save notes that I get from readers, DIY MFA readers, and I have like a little folder. Um, I don't share that folder or the notes with anybody else, but when I'm feeling down in the dumps, when I'm feeling miserable and like, whoa, why do I do this? And I'm like, you know... <laughs> raising my fist to the ceiling, that's when I go and I look at those notes. And it reminds me, like, this is why I'm doing it. Because this person, this specific human being resonated with a specific thing that I wrote. So, you know, sometimes we get really caught up in, like, the numbers. Like, X numbers of people loved your book or hated your book. Or you got this many positive reviews and this many one-star reviews. And at the end of the day, each of those numbers are an individual person. So like you might have gotten one five-star review and a whole slew of one-star reviews, but at that one person, that book was five stars to them. That book meant something to them and it connected to them. It resonated with them enough that they took the time to write a review about your book. So you want to like remember the individual humans behind mm-hmm. the numbers mm-hmm. and Because you're going to get sucked into the numbers game. Like, that's just inevitable. Like, it's the way the industry 
operates. It's the way we tend to operate, especially when you have enough people in your readership that there you can't like personally know each individual person. It's very easy to kind of focus on the overall number and not on the individual human beings. But really, it's the individual human beings that yeah. matter. Yeah, and you also, you know, when you're just starting, uh, you end up meeting many people who ask about how many books did you sell or, you know, how your books are doing and things like that. So you're periodically kind of drifting towards that numbers game yourself as well, somehow. <laughs> Which is why I think it's really important to, like, keep an archive of individual responses to your book, whether it be, you know, you print out emails that you get from people saying how much they loved your book, or, you know, you print out the reviews, the good reviews um, about your book. But like, you want to focus on like, it was this specific, like, Johnny257 really Mm -hmm. thought my book was fantastic. That's a person. Um, Because, you know, it's just, it's very easy to get lost in the numbers. This is something that happened to me at DIY MFA. When DIY MFA first started and I had only 12 followers, one of whom was my mother, I knew each and every one. Like I personally knew all those people. Mm -hmm. And most of them were friends of mine who I like asked to follow my blog. (laughs) Like they were, you know, people I actually knew in, in real life. And, you know, when I, Ever someone joined the newsletter list, like I personally recognized that email address because I knew that person. But now, you know, we've got a larger audience and it's, you know, I might not know the individual people, but when someone does reach out, um, if someone emails me uh, from the newsletter or responds, replies to a newsletter, you know, I try to connect on an individual level with that person because it is a human being one human being who resonated with something that i wrote and that that's worth like a million five star reviews or a million numbers is like having that connection with one person mhm mhm yeah agree so let's go back to diy mfa and uh because we didn't speak about that it that much uh can you explain us what your students may expect from it and you know what it is for and why would they need it so diy mfa um there's sort of different levels that you can kind of engage with us the most basic thing is hopping on the newsletter list. Mm -hmm. Um, If you go to DIYMFA.com slash join, um, I hope you don't mind my putting that in there. No, Um, no no problem. Go ahead. But but yeah, um, but that's just sort of like the easiest, you know, it's free to join and it's just sort of a way to kind of get to know me as a teacher, as a person, as a writer, um, and kind of just get to know my style. Mm -hmm. And I really encourage people to like, hop on the newsletter and be there for, you know, at least read a few issues of it to like kind of get to know me before they decide if they want to take a class or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Um, At the moment, we offer a flagship course called DIY MFA 101. Don't be misled by the 101 in the title, even though it sounds sort of basic. It's actually, the only reason it's called 101 is because it's a foundational course. It's Mm -hmm. like, Everything that you learn in this course sort of lays the foundation for any other writing course you might take after that, both at DIY MFA or after. And the concept of DIY MFA 101 is that it sort of takes the three main pillars of DIY MFA, and that's writing, reading, and community, Mm 
And it sort of walks you through how to cultivate those elements of your own life. So in the writing component, we focus on both the motivation. We also focus on the creativity, like how do you come up with new ideas and develop your ideas? And then we go into a deep dive on craft. Um, in the reading component, we focus on how to read like a writer. And with the, you know, with recognizing that um, not everybody has time to read a million books a year. Mm -hmm. So how do you pick and choose what to read so that then you can focus on, you know, use your spare time for writing um, and kind of make your reading really laser focused. And then the community stuff goes into just both building community with readers, but also building your community with the publishing industry and different, you know, sort of the steps toward publication, um, walking you through like what happens when you send a query and what happens, you know, how do you navigate a conference and all of those things. Um, so it's sort of a foundational course. The idea behind it is that by the end of that course, you then have all the tools you need so that you can put, uh, put together a, custom-built MFA-style program for yourself. And you can just keep doing that as long as you want. Um, so it's not really a – it's not so much information as it is, like, meta, like, learning to learn mm -hmm. and learning mm -hmm. to build your own learning life. Um, mm -hmm. So – uh, so that's kind of what DIY MFA is about. I mean, really what it comes down to is those three pillars, the writing with focus, reading with purpose, and building your community. And that's something that you find in any MFA program. Like I, aside from going to an MFA program, I researched a ton of programs once I was coming up with DIY MFA to see like, okay, this is what my experience was like. Are other MFAs kind of the same or was I, mm -hmm. in, you mm -hmm. know, was it an anomaly, the program I went to? And it turns out the program I went to was pretty much in line with what all the other MFA programs out there mm -hmm. do. And there's usually a strong writing component and then there's a strong literature reading component. And then you also network and make a community within the school and also with the writing community as a whole. Mm -hmm. And since many people are kind of very uh, occupied by different responsibilities, which kind of keep them away from writing full time, etc. Uh, how much time should they dedicate to it once they are committed? Um, it depends. Uh, it depends kind of what your life is like. The number one thing, like it's the very first thing that I teach in the very first module of DIY MFA 101 is honoring your reality. Like you cannot assume that your reality, that you can sort of change your reality and mm -hmm. your life and somehow poof, like you can become a writer. You have to honor the fact that if you've got five kids and that's part of your reality, then you have to honor that. And you also have to honor that your writing is part of your reality, that wanting to be a writer is important, that it matters. And it's just a question of like finding the right balance between the two. Instead of trying to think like either I can be a full-time mom to five kids or I can be a writer, think about how can I do both? How can mm -hmm. I fit my writing around my family responsibilities? And for some writers, that might mean, you know, 
they can get a couple of hours multiple times a week. Other writers, maybe they don't get that much. Maybe they get 10, 15 minutes here, 20 minutes there. They do some writing on their commute, like if they're on a train or a subway or something, et cetera. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, even people who listen to this podcast, like in a way you're kind of doing the same thing that you'd be reading. It's just like you're listening and that's your, your, you know, the fact that you're listening to it while you're probably doing something else, that's a way of sort of fitting writing into your life. Um, and it's really just being creative with ways that you can do that. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so if we would like to wrap it up, uh, I'm, I'm always kind of trying to get um, the most important advice you would give to a newbie writer. If, if you had just one, what would you advise? don't give up. Just don't give up. If you get knocked down, just come right back. The thing to remember is that writing takes courage. And it's not courage doesn't exist. If things are easy. You know, if if you weren't afraid of something, if you weren't, if it wasn't painful, if it wasn't hard, then it wouldn't take courage to do it. So remember that whenever you feel resistance, whenever you feel like, oh, I can't do this or oh, I'm not good enough, that's because it takes courage and you have that courage in you. So don't give up. Yeah, loved it. Well, thank you very much. Thanks a lot for coming over. I really enjoyed this interview and um, I wish you lots of success with what you're doing because it's uh, I, I find it very important and very useful for the writers. Oh, thank you so much. It was such an honor to be here and I absolutely love what you're doing as well. So keep doing it and keep being awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, you too. <laughs> Okay, it seems like that was it for today. Before I forget, I would like also to mention, since we did not cover that part in our interview, that Gabriella has a podcast too, and it's a podcast for writers. So check it out on her website, diymfa.com, or on iTunes in the podcast is called DIYMFA Radio. Please check it out because I'm absolutely sure that it will be very valuable to you. Well, um, otherwise, what can I say? Keep writing, keep reading and network with like-minded people. Take care. Bye. Are you struggling trying to figure out how to sell copies of your book, especially the first 100 copies? The Author Marketing Institute is offering access to their latest free video course called Selling the First 100 Copies of Your Book. This is the course everyone should have when they started publishing. It goes through all the basics from starting a mailing list to experimenting with different prices. If you follow the instructions in this course, you should be primed and ready to sell your first 100 copies, if not many more. Sign up for free at www.authormarketinginstitute.com.